So it's sweet to be able to gather this morning and uh, consider the scriptures to continue in a celebration of the gospel and remembering together. And so I invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 23 through 31. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some paperback Bibles that are on the bench somewhere near you. We'd love it if you'd find that and follow along with us. Acts chapter 9, verses 23 through 31. Now, there's a bit of a theme in uh, Joel's preaching of the gospel along the way. You, you, you probably heard how he did that. It was a nice turn of phrase. The way he said that uh, Matt so powerfully said when he was quoting me, we get to do this together. <laughs> it is a powerful statement, though. It is a great ground of celebration that Joel, Matt is not quoting Joel. Matt is actually joining Joel in quoting Paul and the other ministers of the gospel in the scriptures. What a, a joy it is that we get to do this together. It's a theme of the passage this morning. It's a bit of an underlying theme But it's something that I think is important for us to see is that the apostles, Saul, becomes known as Paul as he ministers among the Gentiles, is established as a partner in the gospel, though he was called by God directly. The ministry that he goes about is within the scope of the unity of the apostles together, that it is None of this teaching of his is a quoting of himself or a quoting of Peter or a quoting of James, the elder, or anyone else. It is a quoting of Jesus, of what he has shared with his church about the gospel about himself. So let's consider this morning Acts chapter 9, verses 23 through 31. Please follow along with me. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, that is Saul. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit. It multiplied. Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace upon grace upon grace. Grace to call people to yourself each One who has believed has received the gift of faith from your hand. But each one who has believed has believed on the other side of hearing. And so you commission particular people to go about this work of of preaching and teaching. But at the beginning of your church, you commissioned these 12, these apostles, 
to establish the, the normative, the standard teaching that was passed to them from the one Lord, Jesus Christ. And we celebrate that we have a sure word. So Lord, I pray that you would ground us together as we get to do this together, that you would ground us not in our togetherness, but in your gospel. Thank you, Lord. Please use this scripture and this message this morning to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to consider for just a moment the church's center. Okay, We have a, 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 a traveling to the Jerusalem this morning by the Apostle Paul. This morning's passage speaks of a man named Saul. We met him a number of weeks ago, a number of chapters ago, but we met him again last week, and he was breathing threats and murder against the church on his way to Damascus. On his way to Damascus, a blinding light whom the Apostle Paul Saul sees and sees that it is Jesus and he sees that the one who, that he was persecuting this, this way of this dead Messiah, Jesus, that he wasn't dead at all, that he was actually alive. And he saw him with his own eyes and he was commissioned to go and preach his gospel among the Gentiles by Jesus himself. And he was transformed. We met that man last week. His Hebrew name is Saul. And because of his significant ministry among the Gentiles, he becomes known by his Greek name Paul, And so I'm going to refer to him as Paul this morning, just for consistency's sake. And before, But before we consider Paul, I want to take just a moment to consider the growth of the church in the early years. I think it's why we have this passage recorded for us. The church has a launching point. It has a center of ex- explosion in the rest of the world. Now, I hope the center doesn't surprise you. The church's launching point, the center of the church, is Jesus Christ. The center of the church is Jesus. But let us also remember that Jesus is not merely a doctrine, an idea that is true. Jesus is a historical reality. There are witnesses. It's the reason why the whole sermon series is entitled Witnesses. Witnesses to the historical reality of Jesus Christ and his gospel. So when we speak of Jesus as the launching point, we are also speaking of Jesus as the historical center. The person and work of Jesus is a historical truth center of all of Christianity. The crooks is the work of Christ, and the vindication of his work is his resurrection. Now this is where I'm going with this. The simple Historical reality of Christianity is that Jesus died in Jerusalem. And Jesus was raised in Jerusalem. Jesus was seen in Jerusalem. And Jesus was commissioned his apostles as witnesses to go and spread the news of his gospel in Jerusalem. And so, without wavering on the reality that Jesus is the historical truth center And the substantial object, substantial, I don't mean like significant. I mean, he is the substance of the object of our faith. We can also say that Jerusalem is the historical geographical center where grace was won and mission was launched. This also is true. Therefore, 
We should not be surprised that for many years, we would find the apostles and the elders and other leaders also launching from that geographical center. Now, the passage this morning is careful to establish a a newly converted and commissioned Paul in unity and gospel partnership with the apostles and the disciples that up to this point still stand and are launched from the geographical center, which is Jerusalem. Paul, off, commissioned by Jesus in Damascus, is going to be established in unity with the church leaders in Jerusalem. Now, here's what we'll see. I think this is important for us today as a church planning movement in Brevard County. We'll see Antioch, in a little over a decade, become a major sending base for church planting mission as the gospel moves forward into Europe. Now, that's because in this world, we do not have a singular, lasting city, not even Jerusalem. This earth will pass away. We anticipate the new heavens, the new earth, and the appearing of the new Jerusalem because the center of our faith and the hope we will one day have is the geographical center of God himself making his home with us. Historical future reality. That's the center and hope of our faith. In this age, the church does not have an institutional geographical center. Rather, the church is shifting. Its center is being established in ever-increasingly local mission centers. We call that the church. The key is that each new center for mission, though, as each new local mission beachhead is established. It is sent in unity with the historical church that came before it. Here's what I mean by that. There is no church that is self-established. There is no leader that is self-ordained. There's just not really a category for that in the scriptures. This morning's passage establishes the Apostle Paul and the church ministry church planting ministry to which God called Paul. It's established in unity with the apostles and the other disciples by bringing Paul to Jerusalem to fellowship and minister with and to be sent out from the midst to extend this ministry beyond Judea and Galilee and Samaria on in to the rest of the world. And then we see Paul commissioning Titus and Titus commissioning elders and the church moves ever increasingly into the locations to the ends of the earth. Now our passage this morning, if you look at it with me, it begins with preparation and plotting. It begins in verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, when many days had passed, like how many days? Like many, like 12, 13, is it a month? Can we... Well, it turns out, if you look over at Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, we actually find this. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, he's talking about the road to Damascus, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia 
and returned again to Damascus. There is, there's an extended season that he spends with Damascus as his base before he returns to Jerusalem. Let me just suggest that might be a good idea because he was sent to capture Christians from Jerusalem and instead he became one. Like it might not be a good idea to return to Jerusalem quite yet, right? We're going to find out that even when he does go, he has to leave again. But he spent three years in Arabia. He's ministering among the synagogues in the Nabataean kingdom, just south of Damascus. And like the other apostles, he spends three years with Jesus prior to a more public ministry. His time with Jesus is most assuredly, largely in the Spirit's word. He's in the scriptures. As God is tutoring him by his word, as he goes back and reads scriptures that he likely had memorized to remember them again in the light of the risen Christ. I wonder if we could do the same. In Galatians, Paul tells us why it's so important that that we know that he did not go to Jerusalem immediately. Here's what he says in Galatians. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. Do you get that? It is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's Paul's concern. His concern is that his hearers understand that he is not simply preaching a gospel as a tradition or mythology of men. The gospel he preaches is the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus himself in accordance with the scriptures. It is not distinct from, it is not contrary to, it is not, it does not originate with the Apostle Paul, and is not contrary or distinct from the other apostles, but rather it originates in Jesus himself. It's not the creative work of any one of the apostles, nor is it the creative work of one of them that simply taught the others. It originates in Jesus, and the apostles' teaching is directly the teaching of Jesus himself. Now, it's for that reason, because this teaching was so radical that there is a God who became man, who dwelt among sinners and then died in their place and then rose from the dead. And let's be honest about what we're talking about here. That's pretty radical. The Jews plotted to kill him. They plotted to kill him. The enemies of the gospel It's interesting, they very rarely engage with the message of the gospel. What did they do? Did they refute him? Did they write books that successfully put him down? No. They resorted to the work, as the church is increasing, they resorted to the work of seeking to kill him. The strategy of the enemy is most often to destroy the messenger. Consider Jesus himself. Not only did the enemies of the gospel that he preached seek to murder him, but Jesus, but Satan himself sought to derail Jesus through temptation. The idea is take out the messenger, kill the message, right? We're going to see the genius in the strategy of God for the establishment of his church here. Just briefly... We see that they lowered him in a basket. Now, it's interesting that Saul isn't the first of the messengers that was saved in a basket. You remember Moses, right? Paul approaches Damascus in pride and rage. 
Paul enters Damascus blind, led by the hand. And now Paul leaves Damascus humbled in a basket. That's his story. But he leaves preaching the gospel. The world has never been the same. If you continue with me, looking at verse 6 and forward, it says that he came to Jerusalem. He came there to join the disciples. Paul had received the direct call of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Let us not forget that. But that does not mean that he is a rogue and a maverick. That does not mean, hey, I saw Jesus in the light and the glory of his resurrection body, and he told me to preach, so here I go. No, he's not a rogue and a maverick, but rather he goes to join the disciples in Jerusalem. By going to Jerusalem, the present leadership and the sending center of the mission of the church, Paul establishes his preaching mission and message in unity with the church as a whole. And he could say, I'm so glad we get to do this together. That means that you can kill Paul. You can do it. You can be successful. But the truth of the gospel remains. Because the truth of the gospel is about a message, not the messenger. It's a genius in the mission of God for the spread of his church. There's nothing peculiar or novel or unique in the gospel ministry of Paul. He stands with the apostles, prophets and saints, in the gospel of Jesus Christ that had been delivered to them and will be delivered by them, has been delivered to us and will be delivered by us. Now, there's this fascinating little story that takes place in the middle of this. In verse 27, when the disciples are scared of him. I mean, last time he was here, three years ago, he was jailing people and stuff. It says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoke to him and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. When Paul comes to Jerusalem, the disciples have a hard time believing that he is a disciple himself. They they were there. They were friends of Stephen whom Paul had killed. These were disciples who had friends and loved ones who Paul had thrown in prison. These were disciples who had suffered much at the hands of this young supposed convert. Barnabas is such an important character in Acts. Barnabas serves as a sort of sponsor for Paul in his introduction to the apostles in Jerusalem. We first met Barnabas back in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we learn that his real name is Joseph, but that the apostles came to call him Barnabas. Because Barnabas, it means son of encouragement. Aptly named, friends. He's one of the first to bring his possessions and lay them at the feet of the apostles for the sake of the ongoing movement of the mission of the church. And we'll see him again in Antioch as he continues the mission of planting the church. And we see him here bringing the apostle Paul before the other apostles to see to the establishment of the mission of the church, ultimately to the Gentiles. It's in the context of the faithfulness and the encouragement of Barnabas that Paul is brought into fellowship with the other apostles. And it's through the ministry of Barnabas that the church grows not only in doctrinal unity, it's so important, but also in relational unity. Brothers and sisters, this is what we need. 
We need sons and daughters of encouragement like Barnabas here. I wonder how many Barnabases played a part in Joel's story this morning. How many stood by and ushered Joel from one part of his journey to the next, all so that the gospel of Jesus would be preached boldly? And that's what Paul does. He preaches boldly. In verse 28, it says, So when he, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Partnership in the gospel. Partnership in gospel proclamation. It's so important and precious to Paul. He writes about it often. My favorite passage is in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, where he writes this. I thank my God for, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. That just means I'm really excited to be praying for you guys. All right? Because of your partnership in the gospel, he says, from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. A powerful words, especially out of the mouth of Paul. Think about it. What a work God had begun in this young man. What comfort and sustaining joy that God is sure to complete the work that he began on that road to Damascus on that day of his conversion. I wonder how often words similarly to these were first spoken over Paul by Barnabas, who with joy overflowing in his heart says, I remember you every time I think of you, Paul, in my prayers for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now all those churches and all those journeys and now in your imprisonment in Rome. I'm sure he's going to bring it to completion. Friends, the church needs sons and daughters of encouragement who take great joy in prayer in the partnership in the gospel. I want to just conclude our time by, by reflecting on the three parts of this passage that we've looked at. I want to go to a moment of application in each. I want us to remember first, let us remember that the church has one Redeemer. Yes, the church has many teachers throughout its history. Yes, there were 12 apostles with two rising to prominence in the ministries of Peter and Paul, but they received and preached one message that came from one source. One Redeemer, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I think this has two implications for us. Please get this. We can have great confidence in the gospel that has been handed down to us in the scriptures through these many witnesses who received it all from him. Friends, they are about to literally give up their lives unto death. Because they agreed together that they heard one thing. Friends, I can't find two people who can agree together to have heard the same thing in a room. But we have 12 apostles who agreed together that they heard this gospel from the Lord to Jesus Christ. And they gave their lives and their death 
for the sake of that message. Friends, we can have confidence that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. He is the only begotten son of God. This is not a beautiful philosophy that is an encouragement in life. This is a historical reality that men and women in the church have grounded their eternity on, given their lives for. We believe that he lived the righteous life, that Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners for the forgiveness of their sin, that he rose victorious to secure eternal life. And that was all for those who would confess their sin to him and who would place their faith in him and him alone. Friends, we have a great cause for confidence in the gospel. And secondly, just as important, we have cause for unity in the church. There's cause for unity. We do truly have one message. We are free to be one because our mission does not stand upon the success or failure or obscurity or prominence or life or death of any one of us. (laughs) You could say that we are expendable, each one. The message is central. May we labor, therefore, as a people who doggedly together believe this one message with unity. May we labor together as one church with Peter and Paul and all who came before us because we have one gospel message and one glorious Lord and one spirit that is still at work in planting his church. Secondly, Let us seek to make our unity visible. It's true, but does it look like it's true? We have one message that has purchased for us unity, but do we walk in what has been purchased for us? Paul was called and commissioned by Jesus himself. He did not have to go to the apostles. In fact, in Galatians, he goes out of his way to downplay his visit to Jerusalem. But he did go. And the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem were sure to affirm their unity in a shared gospel. Later on, you'll see they say, just make sure you care for the poor as you go. What a powerful foundation the apostles and the leaders of the church laid by this visible unity in Jerusalem for the launching of a worldwide church planting movement that continues to this day. Again, there are two implications for us. We ought to strive for visible unity with those who have received and share the same gospel message from the scriptures. That is a... (laughs) If I said it was a difficult endeavor, it would be a severe understatement. It looks like a guy who very well might die if he goes to Jerusalem, going to Jerusalem for that sort of purpose. It is a difficult and costly and sacrificial endeavor to strive together for unity in the message of the gospel. But at the same time, these two must be held in both hands. Our unity is not first institutional and visible. 
Our unity finds its footing in our shared faith in Jesus and his gospel. Our unity must be centered and grounded in the gospel or there is no true unity, even if we manage to be together. There is a way, and I've watched it happen in institutions that call themselves by the name of Jesus, that they could say, I'm glad that we are doing this together. But what they are doing is not gospel unity. Friends, these things have to be held in both hands, and they are both worth the fight. Third, let us be bold in proclamation together. I don't know any other way to say it. Let's be bold. God has begun a good work in us, right? He's begun a work. On our own, we were lost. We were without hope apart from Christ, but we were not beyond the transformative power of the grace of Jesus Christ to save. Do you believe that that's only true for you? Do you believe that there's something that sets the partners in the gospel here at this church apart that the grace worked in us but won't work in our community? Or can we with boldness say, oh my goodness, it worked in Paul and I. Surely God's grace is sufficient for my neighbor, for my coworker, for my family member, for someone that I just met and God has given me a heart to pray for. You have friends and family members and coworkers. Let us go and proclaim together boldly in gospel proclamation. And here's what we'll see. We'll wrap up with this little sentence here at the end of the passage in verse 31. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. How beautiful to see the church in the midst of gospel clarity in the midst of gospel clarity and bold mission at peace and being built up. They were walking in two things. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit. They knew who their Redeemer is. They knew Him by name. They knew that their Savior is nothing less than the creator and sustainer of the universe and the purchaser of their forgiveness in His death on the cross and the one who has secured eternal life in his resurrection. He is rightful Lord and King. They knew it, and they based their lives and lived their lives in light of him. And they knew the comfort and presence of the Holy Spirit. They experienced the reminder of the truth that the Spirit brings, and they experienced the gifts of the Spirit which God gives to his church for edification and our peace. And you know what they knew? They knew something precious for which we pray. They knew growth. They knew the effect of grace in the lives of those to whom they went boldly proclaiming. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bring us to this kind of unity, to this kind of boldness, to this kind of growth, and to this kind of peace. That it would be a, the fruit of gospel-centered unity and fruit of partnership and labor and sacrifice in the gospel. But above all things, May the Lord bring his church himself. Heavenly Father, our hope has its center, a resting place. It's called a resting place because there's peace there. There's 
a place where we can cease our striving. We are secure. It's grounded in you and your gospel. We long for your return when there will be a geographic center for your church and it will be your throne. It's astounding to us that you say that you would you would cause heaven to come to earth, that you would establish your throne on the new earth. Until that day, may we be centered on the truth of your gospel until your return in expectation of your return with bold proclamation and confidence that you would battle bickering and you would put down false unities. Thank you, Lord, for the scripture. Thank you, Lord, for continuing to teach us by your spirit and for preparing us as your church to be a people of a message. And I'd just like to thank you for one last thing. That while it's true, we are expendable to the gospel message, we are not expendable to your love. We thank you that those whom you love whom you have adopted as yours, those in whom you have begun this good work, you will bring us to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I pray that you would begin that work in someone this morning, that you would bring salvation to bear, forgiveness and faith in the life of everyone gathered, and especially those of here who have not yet cried out to you. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. You are our only hope and the only way by which we might grow in this county. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, Lord, and Redeemer. Amen.